Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the election today of the new Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, and speak with an American political philosopher who was contacted by Scholz back in December, who asked for his advice on winning back working-class voters who had moved to the right in support of populist politicians like Trump in the United States and the AFD party in Germany. Joining us is Michael Sandel, who teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. His books, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, and Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, were international bestsellers and have been translated into 27 languages, and his course, Justice, was the first Harvard course to be made freely available online and has been viewed by tens of millions. His BBC series, The Public Philosopher, explores the philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines with participants from around the world, and his latest book is The Tyranny of Merit, What Becomes of the Common Good. We'll discuss whether the Democrats will take a cue from Schultz's success in winning back alienated working-class voters, and whether they will borrow what was the centerpiece of Schultz's campaign that showed respect to workers and celebrated the dignity of work. Then we'll try to understand the new GOP, the Trump Party and its rank and file, who seem to be consumed by hate and anger, following a leader who is all about himself, and a party that has no policies, plans, programs, or a platform for that matter. Joining us is John Nichols, who is the Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, the fight against a jobless economy and a citizen-less democracy, and most recently, the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, the enduring legacy of Henry Wallace's anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. We'll discuss his article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci is part of the deadly chorus of GOP misinformation, and another at The Nation, today's GOP would excommunicate Bob Dole to assess what can be done to stop the party now displaying the angry and hate-filled faces of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobbitt, Paul Gosar, Jim Gordon, and Matt Gates from becoming a permanent one-party tyranny of the minority in the United States, led by a grifter who demands and receives cult-like loyalty to him. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. 
And joining us now is Michael Sandel, who teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. His book, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets and Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, were international bestsellers and have been translated into 27 languages. And his course, Justice, was the first Harvard course to be made truly available online and has been viewed by tens of millions. And his BBC series, The Public Philosopher, explores the philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines with participants from around the world. And his latest book is The Tyranny of Merit, What Becomes of the Common Good. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Sendell. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us again, Michael. And I noticed the New York Times has an article about the new Chancellor of Germany who was sworn in today, Olaf Schulz, the leader of the Social Democratic Party. He is in coalition, of course, with the pro-business Free Democrats. They'll be controlling the finance ministry and the Green Party will be in control of the foreign ministry and the environment ministry and a new ministry of the economy and the climate. So tell us about how this German politician at the height of when he seemed to be the the greatest long shot for chancellor got in touch with you and what did he want to know? Well this was back last winter. In fact Ian it was just a month or two after you and I spoke about my new book, The Tyranny of Merit, and the themes about how center-left parties had lost the, lost credibility with working people. The working classes had traditionally been the primary base of center-left parties, the Social Democrats in Germany, the Democratic Party, going back to FDR's New Deal, you and I were discussing uh, how this happened, and a couple months later, people working for the Social Democratic Party in Germany uh, said that Olaf Scholz wanted to have a dialogue at a party event, a public event, and so we did. Turns out he had read uh, my book, The Tyranny of Merit, which had come out in German by then, and he was on to similar themes. He thought it was important to try to reconnect the Social Democratic Party in Germany, which really had fallen on hard times in the previous election. They they got the smallest percentage of the vote since the end of uh, since they had since the end of the Second World War. So it was really a project of revival, and the central theme of the book that resonated with Mr. Schultz was the idea that that politics in an age of inequality, uh, it wasn't in wage stagnation. It wasn't enough simply to tell working people, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college, get a degree. What you earn will depend on what you learn. That was the slogan that Bill Clinton and Democrats in the United States had offered and that the Social Democratic Party of Germany had offered, it wasn't enough. It was insulting to workers to tell them the problem with the economy isn't the neoliberal version of globalization we've created. The problem is you. You just don't have a good enough education. So that's really what we talked about. We spoke for about an hour. It was a public event back in December. And lo and behold, he he made these themes the centerpiece of his campaign. He, the, the idea of respect for working people, social recognition, the recognition that work and the dignity of work 
are not only about uh, decent wages, though that's important, but also about social recognition and esteem. This is what center-left parties, including the Democratic Party in the United States, had missed uh, in recent decades. So this, Ian, is really how it came about. Well, the extraordinary thing is that it worked that for the first time since 2005, the Social Democrats became the strongest party among the working class. And just quoting from the New York Times here, just over 800,000 voters who had abandoned the party for the far left and the far right returned in the last election. So isn't that a lesson for the Democrats? I think it is. And what's interesting is that the, the, the stakes are higher now because as working people have abandoned the Democratic Party in the United States, the Labour Party in Britain, the Social Democratic Parties of Germany and of France, they have many have embraced right-wing populist authoritarian parties. Many working people voted for Trump, including voters who traditionally, half a generation back, were reliable Democratic Party voters. And it's important to ask why. And that was the question that Olaf Scholz asked himself and his party. Um, and he, he was able to address it. Uh, he made the dignity of work and respect for working people the centerpiece of his campaign. Now, there were, of course, concrete economic policies connected with that, raising the minimum wage, which we've heard a lot about in the United States as well. Um, but beyond that, it was a shift in the culture, the culture of appreciation and recognition, in addition to trying to make the economy uh, more responsive to the needs of working people at a time of widening inequality and wage stagnation. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Sandel, who teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. His books, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, and Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, were international bestsellers and have been translated into 27 languages. And his course, Justice, was the first Harvard course to be made freely available online, and he's been viewed by tens of millions. And his BBC series, The Public Philosopher, explores the philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines with participants from around the world. And his latest book is The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. Well, the extraordinary thing is, though, that the Green Party in Germany is a big part of this coalition. And as I mentioned, they have important cabinet posts, including foreign minister. Right. They're almost negligible here in the United States. I mean, a lot of people were obviously were upset about Ralph Nader's joining the, the race in Florida in 2000 with getting 96,000 votes, which a lot of people thought could have gone to the Democrats. And with George W. Bush winning by 537 votes, the mathematics there are pretty stark. And in the uh, in the 2016 election, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, got more votes than Hillary lost by, Hillary Clinton lost by in those three key states of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. But, you know, that's the structure we have in this country where third parties tend to be spoilers. So the fact that... that, uh, It it is true that the Green Party in the United States, given our party system, the the entrenched two-party system, has a a very hard time 
uh, establishing a significant presence apart from a spoiler role. But what's interesting about the new coalition in Germany, Olaf Scholz, as you mentioned, Ian, is in coalition with the Green Party and with a pro-business uh, party, the, the coming together and the, the Greens increased their vote uh, very substantially in this election, as did the Social Democrats in Germany. That is potentially a very powerful coalition. In American uh, uh, terms of American politics, it really represents the coming together of uh, two issues, really, economic justice and concern for climate, for climate change and for the environment. And so I think this uh, this set of themes, which this set of themes could be a valuable, important new direction for center-left politics in the United States and in Europe. It means it's important to recognize this. It means turning away from mainstream liberal politics of the last four decades, which has embraced neoliberal globalization has embraced a certain kind of economic orthodoxy, a certain market faith, um, and, a, and an emphasis on finance. The Wall Street friendly wing of the Democratic Party has essentially governed going back to for, from Bill Clinton up until uh, it was renounced in 2016. And the neoliberal finance friendly version of globalization is what created the widening inequality and the wage stagnation that created a lot of the resentments that drove working people away from the Democratic Party. And then uh, Democrats and social Democrats in Europe added insult to injury by saying, if you want to overcome the wage stagnation and the outsourcing of jobs, and if you want to compete in the global economy, all you need to do is to get a university degree and then you too can rise. This seemed inspiring in a way, because of course it's a good thing to encourage as many people as possible to get a university education. Who could be against that? But to offer that, Ian, as if it were the solution to the vast inequalities brought about by neoliberal globalization, that was the insulting part because it said the problem with inequality and job loss and wage stagnation is not that our version of finance-driven globalization failed. The problem is simply that you didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get yourself a degree, get yourself lustrous credentials, then you too could be a professional. That was the insulting part of the political message. And this, I think, is what Olaf Scholz, um, he's turned the page on that version of neoliberalism. And so, in a way, as Joe Biden, because Joe Biden was less given to the meritocratic mantra, to the slogan about uplift through university education, less than his democratic predecessors. He spoke less about arming people for meritocratic competition and more about the dignity of work. And of course, he struggled to get the votes he needs uh, 
in in Congress to uh, to enact the more ambitious aspects of his Build Back Better program. But it does reflect really the first post-Reagan presidency, a presidency less in the thrall of a meritocratic credentialist ideology, less in the thrall of orthodox economists, less concerned about uh, winning the confidence of the bond markets and more concerned with actually creating jobs, but also social esteem for, for working people, whether or not they have a university diploma. Indeed, uh, Biden often talks about good, high-paying union jobs. But the other aspect, though, and, and we have a money-driven political system, clearly, where our legislatures have become telemarketers, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, they spend most of their days dialing for dollars. And it was, after all, Bill Clinton that moved the Democratic Party towards Wall Street simply to go after the money because the unions who traditionally finance the Democratic parties have have lost their membership down to, what, less than 7% of the private workforce today. So... It's a sort of lethal combination, isn't it? It's a sort of arrogance of the Hillary Clinton uh, remark about the deplorables uh, right. combined with the fact that the money establishment already has the Republican Party in its pocket. So the Democrats come knocking on the door and the Republicans don't have to lie to their constituents, whereas the Democrats have to basically take their money from the same people the Republicans are getting their money from but they have to tell the Democratic voters that they're on their side and they're on the side of the working class. So isn't there a sort of built-in hypocrisy there that Democrats have created for themselves? Well, there is a built-in tension, to say the very least, Ian. I think you're pointing to something of real importance. As, as you pointed out, Bill Clinton uh, became first Democratic president in recent memory who explicitly embraced Wall Street and finance-friendly policies and came into office uh, having campaigned on a, a program of public investment in education and in health and in infrastructure and in technology. And when he took office, he was told, well, the, the deficit is bigger than we anticipated. We have to win the confidence of the bond market of Wall Street. And therefore, instead of uh, expenditures, public investment, we need to reduce the deficit. And this really was a, an important turning point for the Democratic Party. And by 2008, when Barack Obama was elected, for the first time, the Democratic candidate for president raised more money from Wall Street than the Republican did. So 2008 was another turning point. And then, as you mentioned, in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, spoke of the uh, the basket of deplorables, half of Trump's uh, supporters being a basket of deplorables. And after the election, a year or two later, she she boasted about the fact that she had won some two thirds of the of the counties uh, that represented something like two thirds of GDP. She had won the prosperous 
parts of the country, the enlightened parts of the country, and essentially the winners of globalization, she said, uh, in effect, had voted for her, and uh, Trump had won uh, those who you know were left behind and, in her view, backward and benighted. Now, it's certainly true that Trump's racist appeals did attract uh, some voters who uh, who were uh, drawn to that. There's no denying that. But uh, but that fact should not prevent Democrats from asking why have their economic policies contributed to the widening inequality and to the job loss and to the wage stagnation such that working people feel betrayed by the Democratic Party. It's a complex mix of race, but also of economic neglect, and I would add meritocratic hubris, because along with the inequality in recent decades came changing attitudes towards success. Those who landed on top, Ian, came to believe that their success was their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that they therefore deserved the full measure of the bounty the market bestowed upon them. So I think with, with in their quiet ways, uh, Biden in the United States and Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor in Germany, are moving away from that meritocratic hubris. It's, it's worth notice, noting that Joe Biden was the first nom Democratic nominee for president in 36 years without an Ivy League degree. And this, I think, is a certain advantage. Uh, it, it may have, enabled, may have enabled him to connect a little bit more easily with the working class voters the Democratic Party has struggled to attract in recent decades. But more than that, I think it made him a little bit less enamored of the uh, credentialed classes uh, who presided over four decades of finance-driven globalization that resulted in millions of jobs lost, uh, wage stagnation for four decades for, for the median uh, uh, worker. And uh, I think that center-left parties need to emerge from from that doctrinaire neoliberal version of of global capitalism that um, have left working people and many middle class voters struggling and understandably resentful. It's important, especially because if the center left parties don't find their way to a uh, to a politics of the dignity of work and of economic justice and of the common good, then the anger and resentment will continue to be exploited by right-wing populist figures like Trump, or in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party that has a certain kind of uh, right-wing populist appeal, uh, and, and similar parties throughout Europe. So the stakes are really quite high. Well, just in closing, the irony, of course, is that a lot of the right-wing populist politicians, some of whom might well become the next president, like Ron DeSantis is a, has an Ivy League Harvard education, along with Josh Hawley, is another wannabe Republican leader. But at the end of the day, we are stuck with a situation where 
Joe Biden is essentially begging a couple of Democratic senators who are pro-Wall right. Street, particularly Kirsten Sinema. And on the House side, you've got Josh Gothheimer or whatever his name is from New Jersey, who's got the biggest Wall Street wall chest of any, any congressman. He's got more money than Nancy Pelosi has. So that's all it takes, in a way, yeah. for the kind of establishment, for the want of a better description. If they, they own the Republicans, they have to do, all they have to do is peel off a couple of Wall Street Democrats and all you know, social progress, progressive politics are literally stalled, if not squelched. Right, right. And I think that that points to really the moral of the story of uh, politics in the last few decades, especially since the populist backlash of 2016. The success of right-wing populist movements and candidates is usually a symptom of the failure of progressive politics. Because when progressive or social democratic politics are at their best, they speak convincingly to the, the fears and to the aspirations of working people, that they will be respected, that their work will be rewarded properly economically and also in terms of social recognition and esteem. So it's, it's very important that center-left and social democratic parties find a, a language, find a voice, a way of speaking to the legitimate grievances, not to the racism, not to the xenophobia, but to the legitimate grievances of many working people that they have been ignored in the United States by the Democratic Party in its turn uh, to embrace Wall Street and credentialism. Uh, and th it's very important that the Democratic Party, like, like Olaf Scholz in Germany, has begun to do, finds a way to reconnect with working people, with the dignity of work, with economic justice, and with a broad politics of the common good that is not in the thrall of Wall Street or finance. Well, Marcus Andel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Sandel, who teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. His books, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets and Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, were international bestsellers. And he's been translated into 27 languages. And his course, Justice, was the first Harvard course to be made freely available online and has been viewed by tens of millions. And his BBC series, The Public Philosopher, explores the philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines with participants from around the world. And his latest book is The Tyranny of Merit, What Becomes of the Common Good. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back trying to understand the new GOP, the Trump Party, and its rank and file, who seem to be consumed by hate and anger, following a leader who is all about himself and a party that has no policies, plans, programs, or a platform for that matter. If you don't get three A's Her sweet daddy said You're no child of mine And as far as I'm concerned You're dead Staircases The universe 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, and most recently, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and he has an article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci as part of a deadly chorus of GOP misinformation, and another at The Nation, Today's GOP Would Excommunicate Bob Dole. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's great to be with you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us, and I'm trying to figure out here what's happening to the country and to the GOP. <laughs> we know the GOP is controlled by Donald Trump. And that's bad enough in itself. But it seems to be fueled by hatred and anger. And it, they don't have any policies. They don't have any programs. They're not a, a, a political party in that traditional sense. They're just this sort of angry mob who seems to get thrills out of trolling liberals and owning the libs. And that seems to be <laughs> that seems what they thrive on. And it's the party now who projects the faces of a crazy QAnon woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and another one, Laron Bobbitt, and a Paul Gosar and Matt Gates. These are the face of the GOP today. And I guess the thing that I find even more alarming is through voter suppression, they're likely to come back, win in 2022 and win in 2024, and we'll have a one-party state run by hateful, gun-toting people who are just angry and inchoate and have nothing constructive or positive to say or do, and God help us. Well, apart from that, how are things going? <laughs> Mrs. Um, Lincoln, right. <laughs> yeah. How was the play? Um, look, it, this, is a pretty rough, this is a pretty rough period in our history, and it's a fascinating thing. Because if we step back from it and recognize, you know, sort of the reality of our circumstances, a very, very wealthy country, um, it's struggled through COVID because of the incredible handling of it by Donald Trump, but, but you know, is, has survived somewhat well. Um, we have an economy that appears to be booming, at least to some extent, especially for the very, very wealthy. Uh, but in general, unemployment is down and you can use a whole bunch of other measures that um, should tell us that we, you know, we ought to be debating how to get things right, how to how to repair the things that aren't working, how to progress. And instead, we are sort of locked in this, you know, backward spiral. Uh, and uh, it is clearly because the Republicans are very, very good at controlling the narrative. Uh, they're so much better at it than the Democrats that at this point, um, you know, pretty much everybody's down, everybody's depressed. There's a lot of fear, a lot of uh, a sense of almost hopelessness, which uh, the the realities around us shouldn't be leading us to. But that's where we've ended up. So what do we do with that? How do we how do we deal with it? Well, the first thing is that we call it out for what it is. And the truth of the matter is that at this point, the Republican Party is an authoritarian party. They are, want to guide us toward a point where they have power, something, you know, not, maybe not absolute power, 
but something that is, is far greater than what you would gain through a fair and free election. They want they want to have a dominance of our society, a dominance of our lives, and uh, they're willing to to seek it pretty much at any cost, at any end. Uh, what's fascinating to me is that there is no real set of principles. There's no real set of ideals that they're they're built around. It is merely opposition to uh, the Democrats being in power. It's anger at the fact that uh, that they don't sit in the White House, that they don't have control of the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, and and other other parts of the political infrastructure of this country. And the reason we should fear that, the reason we should be concerned about it, is that they've, despite their absurdity, despite their extreme nature, they've done pretty well. Um, they, Trump got over 70 million votes, uh, 74 million votes in the last election. They're very close to control of the House. They're very close to control of the Senate. In fact, they're, they're in an even split in the Senate. And so we look toward 2022 and we have this you know, kind of jarring prospect that they might return to congressional control and then in 2024 to come back to, you know, full control, Congress and the presidency. That's what Democrats and progressives should be focused on right now. They should be focused on creating the infrastructure that makes sure that doesn't happen and shoring it up. Unfortunately, they're not. And I, get, and I think if we, you know, to round this all out, to say if there's a reason why I think an awfully lot of people are feeling overwhelmed and feeling down, people of good good intentions and good spirit, it is because the Democrats don't seem to be willing to fight this thing. If they were willing to fight this thing, Ian, they would say, look, we're going to do Build Back Better. We're going to do these other issues. But right now we're pulling the brake on everything and we're looking at what's happening in the states. We're looking at you know what's what's happening in general. And we are going to focus for the rest of this year on passing the For the People Act, passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, passing the legislation that Amy Klobuchar and others have developed to ensure that that Republicans don't deconstruct the small-D Democratic infrastructure of this country. And the Democrats don't seem to be prepared to do that. And it's, it's, it's astounding to me. It is you know, how people have must have felt in other countries when they watch slow motion coups playing out. Um, if the Democrats do not get their act together and pass democracy legislation now, it's an immediate and urgent initiative, then we really are looking at the prospect that uh, Republicans could game this system in ways that might restore them to power. Well, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and caught everybody by surprise. And it's not inconceivable that we could have a collapse of this country and of its democracy in the same kind of surprising way because the groundwork is being laid at the moment. And when you talk about a party, the GOP, that has no policies, plans or programs but is just propagating hate and anger, I think one of the reasons perhaps why they don't state what their main program is that they don't want to at the same time they're being successfully in in the sense that they're seceding from the union in, in the way that the confederacy failed in the way if you look at the states of florida and, and texas in particular and other red states it's pretty clear that 
what they're saying to the rest of us is, we don't want to live with you people. We don't want to live with you liberals and progressives and you minorities. And I think that they're in the process of building a tyranny of the minority because they've got the structure of the Senate and the Electoral College on their side built in. And if they can gerrymander and suppress the vote and rig the vote to the extent that they are doing now, then you will have a tyranny of the minority. And of course, you've got the Supreme Court backing them up. I think that's their program. I think they oh, yeah. are literally in the process of seceding from the union and making us second-class citizens. Yeah, the only I, I might uh, challenge your language slightly, uh, not your concept, and that is the notion of uh, them seceding. I think what they figured out is that when they seceded in the 1860s, that didn't really work out for them all that well, um, although they, they sort of won some of the battles of history for a very long time. Um, and, and so now I think what they really want is what you're describing there, tyranny of the minority um, within, you know, the, the current map of the United States. They, they're kind of willing to live with us as long as they tell us what to do and as long as they, they dominate everything. And that, you know, you see that in a, a case of a state like Texas. A very diverse state, um, you know, and, and a relatively closely divided state politically, and yet the uh, Republicans in the legislature in Texas are passing incredibly radical pieces of legislation. And so you ask yourself, how could that possibly uh, succeed politically? How do you how do you get away with a situation where you're doing incredibly unpopular and dangerous things? And when you're governing incompetently, literally the point where the grid goes down in the winter, um, you know, when you seem to be doing everything wrong, uh, how can you, how would you, why would you pursue that? Why would you as a political party, um, you know, follow that path? Well, the answer is that uh, they believe they can deconstruct democracy sufficiently so that while we will have the facade of elections, um, you know, we'll, we'll have elections. But we we won't have the reality of a of a real contest, and we've got that in the Senate right now, where you know a, a handful of states effectively have veto power over the rest of the country because in very low population states. But there's the two seat rule gives them when you add it up an ability to uh, as long as the filibuster exists uh, to block you know most legislation. Uh, then we see that with gerrymandering in the House of Representatives. We see it with uh, really aggressive voter suppression initiatives being enacted across the country. Uh, and this is everything from voter ID to just making it hard to vote on certain days and hard to do an absentee ballot, things like that. And then finally, Ian, uh, one of the things I've been tracking a lot recently across the country are these initiatives by Republicans in the states to literally overturn the rules, the structures, the policies of the existing election structures. This would be the state elections boards, even the operations of secretaries of state. And you know, the, the end goal of this is a situation where it's incredibly hard to vote if you don't happen to be someone who's inclined to vote on the Republican side. And uh, if by chance the uh, progressive forces do win, uh, it's incredibly easy to challenge and overturn election results. No matter how you measure that, that's a recipe for uh, disaster from a small d democratic standpoint. But it is uh, certainly a, a 
fine recipe for gaining control if you are a very determined minority that operates pretty much as a cult. Well, it's happening in the state of Wisconsin, your state. Yes, it is. And you do have a Democratic governor, but they want to get rid of the the bipartisan election system that they have now that works fairly and replace it with one completely controlled by Republicans. That's right. We have a state elections board that, you know, it, it does, it's, it's very bureaucratic. It, it, you know, it decides, you know, like how to structure elections, how to, you know, do the times and uh, for when people vote, you know, how to, you know, arrange absentee ballots. You just kind of run down all the stuff. It's a bipartisan board made up of Republicans and Democrats. And while they don't always get along on everything, they, you know, they do his, have historically done pretty good at, at you know, organizing elections um, and and also then counting the ballots and providing the results. Uh, what Ron Johnson, the senior senator from Wisconsin, has argued and proposed is that the Republicans in the legislature simply supersede the state board of elections and start dictating their own rules uh, for how elections are conducted and how votes are counted and results are, are announced. And if Johnson gets his way, as somebody who's very likely to be running for re-election next year, um, I don't see how even the, the most uh, naive person wouldn't imagine that that is a, a strategy for gaining an upper hand, not via the will of the people, but via a gaming and and uh, manipulating of the infrastructure of elections. That's that's what we're seeing in Wisconsin. We've seen a proposal down in Texas that lowers the standard for standard for challenging an election result, uh, which you know it were were that the Texas rule that they've they've developed uh, to be national and were it to have been on the books in states across the country in 2020 would have made it dramatically easier for Donald Trump to overturn election results. Um, and then we go back to January 6th, you know, and we saw you, that's what January 6th was about. It's, it's not often talked about, you know, in, in the way that it should be. We should always understand that January 6th was an attempt uh, to prevent the certification of election results that did not favor the Republicans. And a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives actually voted for that. After the insurrection, they came back in and supported efforts to reject election results. 147 of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, how do you, you know, how do we look away from this and not recognize the reality that's staring us in our face? We have a political party that is absolutely determined to get power. They don't seem to have much reason, some set of principles that they're running on or anything like that. They want the power. And they're so determined to get it that anyone who even deviates slightly from their program uh, is is punished. And so, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the Wyoming State Central Committee of the Republican Party excommunicated Liz Cheney. Now, Liz Cheney is 100 percent conservative. She's an absolute right wing, atrocious authoritarian on a lot of stuff. Uh, and I mean authoritarian, not like in some of the ways we're talking about here, but in, you know, a lot of her vision is, you know, how you move around the world in a neocon manner and things of that nature. And yet, you know, she had a little bit of qualm, a little bit of discomfort with the idea of actually overturning elections. And she thought that Donald Trump and his minions should be held to account for what happened on January 6th. For that, she was thrown out of her leadership position in the House. 
Uh, now she's been excommunicated by her state party. And and so, you know, you tell me when somebody who's like 99 and 9 percent of the time with you, but that unacceptable because they don't follow the dear leader. Um, you know, how is that different from a cult? Let's uh, take a brief station break and we'll be back continuing the conversation after the break with John Nichols. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And again, we're continuing the conversation here with John Nichols, who is the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy. And his most recent book is The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. And he has an article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's Crackpot Criticism of Dr. Fauci is Part of a Deadly Chorus of GOP Misinformation, and another at The Nation, Today's GOP would excommunicate Bob Dole. Now, you mentioned earlier, John, your puzzlement at why the Democrats aren't making these voting rights bills, the John Lewis bill and the one that actually Joe Manchin put for in the Senate, which Stacey Abrams approves of, why they're not making that their number one priority. And I don't know, is it a problem with Biden himself that... He's somehow, because of his long career in the Senate, that he doesn't recognize that today's GOP has nothing to do with the collegiate days when he was in the Senate, that these are different creatures today. These are, this is the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt and all these trolling, grandstanding people like the guy that rolls up his sleeves and turned a blind eye to a wrestling coaches predatory behavior on young boys uh, in the wrestling team. Jim Jordan, that character, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, who who actually put out cartoons of him killing Biden and AOC. Now they're stripping them of, or some of them have been stripped of their House committee seats, which the Republicans are furious about. They're now, there's now an effort underway to strip uh, Bobbitt. She put out a a Christmas card following Congressman Massey from Kentucky who showed a card of himself with his entire family toting uh, machine guns. Massey himself, by the way, I called up a former senior executive in the ATF, the Alcohol and Tobacco Firearms. I asked him, I said, how come Congressman Massey's holding an M60 heavy machine gun? And his, his daughter next to him has an Uzi and his wife has a uh, Thompson submachine gun. I thought they were banned. <laughs> the, the ATF guy said, no, you can like, literally get a license in this country to have machine guns. So what are these people toting guns? What are they so afraid of? The rules, the laws are all in their favor. You can have an arsenal, but you don't have an enemy except your fellow Americans. What the hell is going on? Well, you started with Biden there. I, I went off on uh, and, a tangent. I, sorry, yeah, I'm on a did. bit of a rant here. So it's a, I, and I, uh, I, I was able to keep up, and so 
I'm going to take us back to Biden, and I will say that you had it spot on with as regards Joe Biden. He was 36 years in the United States Senate, eight years as vice president of the United States, which is president of the Senate. Uh, effectively, you know, somebody who's who spent more than half of his very long life uh, as a member of a club and a club that operated with a certain set of rules uh, and, and, and actually was, you know, remarkably uh, cohesive. Didn't necessarily mean they did the right thing. Didn't necessarily mean they they uh, moved in a in a proper direction always, but they did tend to move together. And, um, you know, we just look at that with the passing of Bob Dole. Bob Dole was a, an extreme conservative, you know, very, very right wing guy. And yet, um, you know, he was able to work with Ted Kennedy to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. He worked with Kennedy also to extend the Voting Rights Act in 1982, actually very, very meaningful and important extension there. And frankly, a lot of other issues where there was a, a, a high level of cooperation. Um, still remembering an extreme conservative. And and uh, yet today, I mean, can you imagine that somebody who'd worked with Ted Kennedy to expand civil rights and voting rights and, and do the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, would be the, even considered to be a Republican nominee for, for not just president, but for dog catcher? No, <laughs> it wouldn't happen. Um, and it's because at this point, the Republican Party has rejected that sort of cooperation. Yet Biden still thinks that that somehow, you know, you can appeal to their better angels and and he even, you know, thinks it of Joe Manchin as well. And so you end up with a situation where Joe Biden, I, I think a reasonably honorable man and a, and a reasonably decent guy in a lot of ways is just the wrong person at the wrong time. He's fighting a battle by a, a different set of, of rules of engagement. And his set of rules of engagement are not sufficient to the moment that we're in. Uh, if Biden and Schumer and other Democratic leaders don't recognize the urgent need to shore up American democracy at this point to make sure that you can deal with gerrymandering, voter suppression, efforts to overturn elections, if we don't shore it up now, uh, and we let the 2022 elections go forward uh, on the pattern that they're setting up on with gerrymandering, voter suppression, efforts to overturn, et cetera. Um, I, I think we are doing two things. Number one, effectively guaranteeing that the Republicans will prevail. And number two, setting up a situation where it's going to be very, very hard to imagine how Donald Trump doesn't have at least some upper hand in his all but certain 2024 presidential run. Well, just the other tangent in my little rant uh, was about the Christmas cards. Now, Bobbitt has put out her own Christmas cards with her entire family holding assault rifles. And But Massey from uh, Kentucky was the first to do it. And as I say, I called up a former senior person in the uh, yeah. ATF to say, how could Massey be holding an M60 machine gun? I mean, these things are available, but I've never been able to understand, John, and I've asked a lot of people in the business of what's now called gun safety as opposed to gun control, what it is psychologically in America that, that you have this need to deck yourself from head to toe with camo and Kevlar and strut around holding military weapons. W what are you afraid of? Is, you realize that most Americans don't, right? vast majority of Americans don't. Um, 
And it's that's, true, that's, but then that's, why do these people? Is it is it the same mechanism that why we're talking about Bobbitt and Taylor Green, the ones that are in your face, get the attention? Is that what it is? I think there's some some element of that, and and also I do think these are people who are terrified. I think they are terrified by progress. They're terrified by the progression of the United States, um, and you know, this is the really the sort of unsettling reality of the moment. We have a constitution written in the 18th century that imagined a, a certain way of governing. It has not been sufficiently updated. It has not been evolved uh, in the ways that constitutions of almost every other country in the world have. And so we create a situation where a small minority can hold power and, and hold influence for far longer than, uh, it, than it would logically be empowered. And now they see the reality that even with their, their very long uh, hold on, on power, uh, they're, they're threatened. They don't necessarily have a guarantee that they will continue to be dominant. They, we have a, a more diverse population, we have young people who are you know, far more anti-racist, far more uh, questioning of capitalism, far more deeply concerned about uh, the climate. And they look at all that and they're like, whoa, this country is heading in a way that, that terrifies us. And they, they express their terror, you know, uh, I, I think constantly, you know, with their you know, Christmas cards of guns and confronting people in elevators and, and you know, like ranting and raving about, you know, all these right. threats. Taking over school boards, taking yeah, over yeah. election boards, intimidating people. This is thuggery. It is thuggery rooted in, in a sense of complete horror and terror that this country is, is in fact, evolving beyond their, their ability to control it. And, yeah, and they're desperate. Now that that does uh, that creates real concerns. That's a that's a really troubling circumstance. But the way to deal with that is not to neglect it and not to look away. The way to deal with that is to realize that our small d democratic infrastructure is not sufficient to the moment, and so you need to take some basic steps to shore it up. Uh, I I will guarantee you that you know any enlightened founder of this country would tell you to do that. <laughs> you know, I can I can tell you that that throughout our history we have evolved our small d democratic system in ways that responded to the the progress of the nation and made sure that we didn't you know kind of get locked in the past. That's why after the Civil War we amended the Constitution to give voting rights uh, to those who had, had only recently been enslaved. That's why in the 1920s, way too late, we gave uh, full voting rights to women. That's why you know a little bit later in that uh, period we started to finally give full voting rights to the first peoples of this country, Native Americans. It's why, you know, after great struggle in the Southwest, we extended voting rights to the Latinx community. It's why in the 1950s and the 1960s, a civil rights movement emerged that had as its, you know, core demand voting rights, and those voting rights were protected by the U.S. Congress in 1965. That's why in the late 1960s, when young people were being sent off to Vietnam, uh, but, you know, literally being asked to die for their country, but, but not being allowed to vote on its policies, uh, very quickly a constitutional amendment, or I'm sorry, a set of changes were developed that produced 18 to 21-year-old voting. You know, in this country, we do major changes when we need to. 
And we are at a point right now where we need to do some major changes. Uh, this isn't anything radical. It's not something that's going to undo the constitutional framework of the country. What we're going to do is basically shore it up in a way that that small d democracy works and is responsive. But if Biden doesn't do that, and if Schumer and his allies don't do that, uh, then we are very much threatened with the prospect of minority governance of a country uh, by and minority governance by people who are terrified and uh, quite you know, angrily opposed to progress. Well, just in closing then, John, you have given us a quick history lesson here on how the real progress has been made in this country by progressives who've done the heavy lifting. They stepped up and ended the Civil War and they, they stepped the up and ended slavery and they brought about women's votes and all of the, all of the rights that now we take for granted. They've always, <clears throat> the other side, the conservatives have only said just say no. They've said no to everything. But the heavy lifting has been done. So progressives should be proud of that record. But at this point, I'm looking for somebody to take a stance to, to hold yeah. the line, because look what's just happening to, to Saul Amarova, who was Biden's nominee for control of the currency. She got the, the McCarthy treatment. It's absolutely despicable yeah. that Senator Kennedy, that good old boy from Louisiana, said, should I call you <laughs> comrade? You know, I mean, because she grew up in the Soviet Union, for God's sake. That was her crime. Probably, and, came, to the, probably came to this country and, and you exactly. know, celebrated it. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, you know, but it, I'm, it, I want to add, though, that it, two yeah. Democratic senators have just scuttled her nomination, oh, Tester yeah. and Manchin. Yeah. No, look, the Democrats, well, and remember, uh, those who remember McCarthyism will, will remind you that uh, Joe McCarthy was a Republican, but many Democrats supported and sustained him in the 1950s until he finally was censured by the, by the Senate. In fact, the most courageous opponents of Joe McCarthy tended to be his fellow Republicans, people like uh, Margaret Chase Smith and, and a couple of other Republican senators. And so the, the reality that we must understand is uh, that Democrats have let us down before uh, and let us down badly at critical points. Uh, and that is a good point to kind of conclude on, that we have seen this incident you talk about where uh, an incredibly qualified nominee was uh, rejected, forced to uh, to stepped it back from, from seeking this position uh, because of straight on McCarthyism and stuff that frankly uh, was as bad or worse than anything you saw under McCarthy. And you didn't see President Biden or, or really many other Democrats stand up and say what was the essential response during the McCarthy era, the attorney who said, you know, have you no decency at long last, have you no decency? Uh, that's what should have been said. And that's, you know, we should be, you know, fighting these things, not backing down, not backing off and not neglecting, not neglecting the reality of what, what we're up against here. Because if um, we have more incidents like this, you know, where nominees are withdrawn after they've been effectively red baited, uh, then the Republicans won't they, they won't claim victory. They'll see a chance to a new opening. And that will become uh, even more central to, to what they're doing. Bottom line is the Republican Party at this point in this country is a very evolutionary party. They are very creative. They are constantly looking 
for ways to uh, expand and extend minority rule over the vast majority of Americans. And they will do it through uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, efforts to overturn elections, red baiting, uh, gamesmanship in Congress, obstruction, you know, whatever tool they've got. Uh, Democrats at this point are responding to that in a very weak, very listless way. And history will not look well on that response. History, if indeed things go bad in this country, history is going to say, well, you know, you can blame, blame, you know, Lauren Bulbert and people like that. Or you can realize that that it was Democrats who failed to step up at a time when they were required to do so. Well, John Nichols, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. I'm glad to have this conversation. And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, and his most recent, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. And he has an article at the Capital Times, Ron Johnson's crackpot criticism of Dr. Fauci is part of a deadly chorus of GOP misinformation. And another, at The Nation, today's GOP would excommunicate Bob Dole. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. One more light goes out in